0: Hello and a very warm welcome back to episode four of the Rugby Favourite Podcast. This week I am rejoined by Nick Kane and Brendan Gallagher as we are back in the thick of the Six Nations action. We are joined by special guest former Wales captain and British and Irish lion Michael Owen to preview England-Wales, Scotland-France and Ireland-Italy. Brendan Gallagher, Nick Kane and special guest Michael Owen, thank you very much for joining us. How are you Michael? Yeah, really good,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure to come on uh, on the podcast.
0: Really looking forward to getting into the nitty-gritty of the Six Nations, but before that, Some very sad news for the rugby union and rugby league world this morning. Wigan Warriors legend, Viga Tuigamala, otherwise known as Inga the Winger, has passed away at the age of just 52. He enjoyed a stellar career in both rugby league, representing Wigan Warriors alongside Jason Robinson and his native Samoa in the 1995 World Cup, sandwiched by a career in rugby union where he played for New Zealand at the 1991 World Cup and Samoa at the 1999 World Cup. Brendan, Michael, could you guys say something about the impact of a player, particularly in Britain? Whose legacy was of a magnitude that, to be honest, in the 1990s was very rare for an overseas player.
2: Uh, I'll quickly dive in there, Ollie. From, from a media point of view, he was absolutely huge. He was a superstar in the early 90s when the game didn't have that many global superstars. He he was Jonah before Jonah Lomu. He was a force of nature player, very spectacular, very sort of TV visual. But you know, and he had that Islander background. He was born in Samoa. He was Samoan, even though he initially played for the All Blacks. And he was just box office. And I just remember the excitement of sort of chasing up the M1 in a snowstorm in 93 when it had been announced that it was going to be a press conference and he was going to sign for Wigan. And it was a a huge moment. And in fact, I always think that's the moment where rugby union started lurching towards professionalism because we just lost the biggest name in the game. And although Jonah, two years later, is often seen as the catalyst, I always thought that was the wake-up call for rugby union, that we had to get our act together and come up with a, a professional game that could keep these huge stars in the game?
1: I, I was a kid um, when he was sort of growing up, so I was a teenager, so quite formative years in terms of like watching rugby. Uh, and he was an absolute superstar, so he was brilliant. He was one of those players who made, like, got you on the edge of seat and you wanted to, to watch because he was a little bit different. Um, and he was a fantastic player, but I think also he would have left a big mark as a man as well. I remember reading quite a lot of stuff about him. He, uh, he was a Christian, but I think beyond that, he was, all, he was just a very kind man who was sort of very respected for the way he conducted himself and the way he went about things. Um, and like I say, he was a he was a superstar, but he was very, very humble as well. So I think growing up he was someone who I was certainly inspired by.
2: I you know Jason Robinson, who's been tweeting today about how much he owes to him, Jason himself, in his books and all that, has said you no, know, he was sort of on the wrong tracks a little bit early in his life. And Inga came to Wigan with his, you know, humble Christianity. It wasn't a preaching Christianity, but his values in life and took the young Jason under his, his wing and really transformed his life. So England rugby, we've got a lot to thank Inga for as well.
0: England rugby, international rugby, all rugby. He certainly left a, an enormous legacy, no doubt. And we wish his family, his loved ones, those that played with him, all the best. And there's no doubt, as you gentlemen have touched upon, that his legacy was very much immortalized in both league and union long ago. So, a brief note on last week, we very much build, sorry, two weeks ago now, we very much build France versus Ireland as a title decider in episode two. Brendan, Nick, do you still think that's the case two weeks later?
3: I certainly do, I, and I think, obviously, uh, France uh, obviously racing favourites, and I think they deserve to be. Ireland played extremely well. It was a great game, but I think that France proved there that they have got a game now that they're capable of going through this unbeaten. And um, I think even though they've obviously had their stumbles against the Scots in the last couple
0: of years, I think that they've got the
3: all-court game to, um,
0: to win up at Murrayfield. Brendan, you said no Grand Slam at the start of the tournament. Do you now see that prediction as coming unstuck or do you see France coming unstuck? Uh,
2: I haven't got much around the predictions. I still think that it'd be doing well to get a Grand Slam. You know, uh, England in that last game could be a bit of a stumble. I'm, I'm not convinced that France are going to go through the entire campaign without one match in which they don't get it quite right. But I have to say, hugely impressive. And like Nick said, it was a hell of a match. It was a great match to watch two teams at the top of their game and it was a great advert for Six Nations rugby and rugby generally I thought.
0: It really was it certainly lived up to the bill. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit and say that England, Scotland and Wales all three of them arguably would feel that their destiny is still very much in their own hands. Michael as an ex-Wales player as a supporter of Wales of course do you feel that that's the case for your boys?
1: Wales will definitely feel like that. And I think they've come into the championship being written off a little bit as well. And obviously, it was a really tough performance, tough game out in out in Ireland. And Ireland was was, was superb um, against Wales. But I think even in that defeat, they were obviously obviously Ireland were vastly superior. For me, there was still a uh, spirit there from the Welsh team. They still kept, like, the scramble defence was superb. And whilst Ireland were clearly a better side, Wales still had that spirit. And I feel quite encouraged by that. And obviously backing it up with a good performance against Scotland and a good win. And going to Twickenham and England are favourites, I think it's like 14 points with the bookies. And that's probably about right. But I think if I was the, the Welsh team, you'd feel like you've got enough quality to be able to, to stress England and then and obviously Wales have got to play almost like a perfect match to do it but I think that's obviously what you're aspiring to and I'm not going to like come on here and say England are going to beat Wales so. and I've got a script as well so I, 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 that is quite interesting actually the thing with like Cal and Dickey I don't know if you saw it on social media about this tackle technique and saying about him like going at people's ankles and stuff and that's something that could be in the referee's mind as well when that's, um, when that's raised so it's obviously very difficult to change the tackle technique between games so that's something that could cause uh, upset and stuff as well. I think England are going to come out and try and blow Wales away and Wales have got to sort of hang in there and try and um, make sure they're in the game with with 20 minutes to go.
3: Looking at the way, you know, just the impression that I've got of the way that Mike Adamson referees is that um, he tends to let the game uh, go a little bit more than perhaps some of the English uh, referees do. I sort of feel that 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 could work better for Wales than it does
0: England. So you think Wales will win as well, Nick?
3: I'm not going that far, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> in
0: fact, I'm definitely not going that far. Uh, nice try, Michael. You're very much yeah. on your own in that prediction, <laughs> but you'll be laughing in our faces this time next week if it does pull through.
3: I'll I tell you, you know, I mean, one of the things that I, I, I do feel is that I, I expect it to be a very close game. I think that Wales are always capable of raising their game against England. They came into a much better game against Scotland I don't believe that this English pack is knit together yet. You can never write off the chance of an
0: upset. For me, as an England fan and English native, Wales is always the game that I want to win. And it is one I absolutely hate losing. So in the past three or four years, you know, a couple of times, I've had my entire weekend ruined by you boys, Michael. So thank you very much for that. I'm hoping that doesn't happen this weekend. Brendan, Nick, is this the sort of the most heated battle of the Six Nations?
2: year in, year out. I mean, there's always something special about Wales, England. And yes, Wales do always raise themselves. And it's worth pointing out that Wales have won two of the last three Six Nations matches and have scored 90 points against England in the last three matches. And in the last two matches, they've got their record number of points at Twickenham and their record number of points in a home match. So, you know, Wales's track record against England is pretty good. So, you know, special match, um, special occasion... I feel Wales raise their game more than England do, but i still think England, I'd really like to look at this England side that's been announced this morning. I think England will just about get by, but like Nick, I think it could be a bit of a nail-biter.
1: I think from a Welsh perspective, it, it definitely is the, the biggest game of the Six Nations. It's obviously the stereophonic song about, or well, Mannix, as long as we beat the English, everything's okay. Like is is true for people, so I think it does. It can like sort of say, really make a, a championship for for the Welsh team. Going to Twickenham is incredibly difficult. I think England, because of like they haven't played uh, like the Six Nations game in front of a crowd for a considerable amount of time at Twickenham, so I think it's going to be uh, a massive occasion. I think, like I said, England will come out and really try and blow Wales away, um, and it's going to going to be like a case of Wales hanging on in that first twenty minutes or so, and then trying to show the quality and show that some of the runners, they draw on and try and um, counter-punch a little bit and come back strong in the last
0: 20, hopefully. I think England's attacking intent has been conveyed by picking Harry Randall to start over Ben Youngs, so who's going to get his 115th cap. We'll talk about that in a second. Nick, you and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago against Italy, whether Harry Randall would start. We didn't have the selection at the time. You got your wish. He arguably didn't get enough game time. But it's a big call and it's certainly not one I expected. Um, why do you think Randall has been picked? And do you think this was always Eddie's plan, picking Randall for Italy? And if he went well, picking for Wales too?
3: I don't know what Eddie's plan is. I haven't got a clue. And I'm not sure he does half the time either. But um, I think that um, the whole idea of tempo and playing an up-tempo game is the way in which they're, they're heading. The ball gets through his hands much faster than, than it does Ben Young's. Marcus Smith and he will be on the same wavelength in terms of the speed that they want to play at. That looks like a nice combination. It looks good. My concerns are that, you know, Tuilagi hasn't played, has virtually played no rugby at all. And there's a huge amount of expectation on his shoulders. Uh, He does look in good shape, but uh, he's still very short on game time. Courtney Laws has obviously not had much game time either. And so, as I said earlier, I'm not quite sure that they're real well, really well welded together at the moment, but there are promising signs, you know I mean they they, they do have the capacity to sort of to,
0: to cut loose, or they certainly look as if they ought to. Does this send a message to Ben Youngs saying, "Yeah, your starting spot is not a sure thing for 2023?
3: yeah i would I would say so. I think that Rafi Quirk given what he did in the autumn, you know, I mean, he made quite an impact, you know, coming in against South Africa that, you know, I think he got half an hour against South Africa and uh, that game was pulled out of the fire and he obviously scored, you know, it was a backup line and so on. But if it had been DuPont, people would have been raving. And I think that he's physically, he's clearly more powerful than Randall. My concern about Randall, you know, I mean, he's a very, very fine player, but he is a small He's a small guy. You know, there aren't many scrum halves these days who are as as small as he is.
2: Is that really a factor anymore? He's proven that whatever genetic makeup he's got, he's tough as old boots and he can handle playing against blokes
3: twice his weight. Yeah, it's a good point, Brendan. You know, but I I saw him, uh, uh, he he seems to have a lot of uh, durability, but I saw him get landed on by um, a big Bordeaux hooker bloke the size of a prop and it put him out for about he was out for at least a month maybe six weeks so he does get tagged sometimes but you could say that that happens to everybody
1: this is Welsh heritage that makes him so tough (laughs) (laughs) and there was it was a really I know this is off but it was three scrum three starting scrum halves in the in the last round of six nations matches all spoke Welsh oh wow apparently so Harry Randall um Barney for Italy and uh the Welsh Thomas
0: Williams yeah is it we can't mention the England backline without mentioning Tuilangi. Every time he gets injured, which has been a regular occurrence for the last decade, England have been waiting for him to come back. My issue here, and Brendan, I'm going to ask you this: What message does it send to a guy like Joe Marchant, who, you know, plays week in, week week out for Quins, doesn't put many foots wrong against Italy, and all of a sudden, Manu comes back after hitting Andre relatively hard once, and he's straight back in, and Marchant is out of the squad.
2: Well, it's a conundrum, um, and you're being slightly disingenuous there. in that man who, obviously, over a long test career, albeit injury-affected, has time after time made an impact for England in that 12 slot. And it's just that if that's how Eddie sees how England are going to play, with that sort of 12, and let's face it, Marcus Smith has done very well with that sort of 12 at Harlequins, the Andre Esterhausen figure. If that's how Eddie sees it, that, I think, is probably how it has to go. But, of course, the other conundrum is that he's so rarely fully fit and rarely puts two or three matches together. So if you're going to go the Manu route, you have to be grooming a Manu replacement at 12, a similar figure, a similar sort of player, because to then totally switch around when Manu's not available and either, I know Owen Farrell when he's fit, maybe Henry Slade at 12, Henry Slade's not at 12, Joe Marchant moving around, wing, outside centre, inside centre. It just disrupts the whole bank division. You have to have a like-for-like replacement for Manu. And of course, you know, there's not many of them around because he's a pretty exceptional specimen. So I think England, have, you know, it's great that he's back. I think he'll have a good match and he could be the difference. But it's a, it's a worry for England that they are so reliant on him.
0: Michael, it was your counterpart, Sam Warburton, who said that England has an insane reliance on a player who hasn't even reached 50 caps despite nearly a decade in international rugby. Have you ever seen in, in your playing time, an international reliance on such a player, or certainly that unit of a backline, they rely um, on him and they revolve revolve around him.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's that thing in the game, isn't it? If you get someone who can take you like over the gain line and, and give you that ball when you're on the front foot, and obviously similar in defence, it makes such a difference. I think I do think from the, in the selection of Manu Tulagi, it must be really difficult for him as well. It's obviously brilliant to get to get picked whenever you fit, but then people get better than they? When they play like. Start of the season. You have four or five games. You start to develop your form. You get your sharpness. You start to get better. So it must be quite difficult for him to come in relatively cold um, and have to try and perform at the at the very top of the game in a re, in a really big match. But but like I say, I think England, like you say, they do revolve around him. And they have some of their plays go through him and stuff, and he gives them that just that impetus. And he's a threat, and you can't underestimate how much space he creates for others. Because there's no doubt Wales will be focusing on trying to put some big shots on him early on. I do agree with some of the points you make about Joe Marchant being dropped. He's a great player um, and it must be quite tough to sort
0: of, like you say, not, not be able to build his career a bit further. Before we move on to the Welsh perspective for this game, a quick note on Ben Young's who, should he come off the bench and he likely will, will overtake Jason Leonard's record of 114 caps for England, winning his 115th cap. In general, there's no doubt that he will leave his mark on English rugby and also the position of scrum half as a whole. Nick, what would you say about him changing the role of the scrum half?
3: Yeah, I think you'd start off by saying that it's a phenomenal achievement. You know, I mean, to be able to play at the elite end of the game so successfully for so long is a hell of an achievement on his part. I've had my issues mainly about the speed of the ball. He's been extremely good at times uh, sniping around the fringes and still picks up quite a few tries that way. You, you know the box kicking side of things. I actually don't think that the box kicking aspect of his game is one of the best parts of it. at the moment, his rangefinder seems to be off as often as it, as it is on. look, I, I would just say that it's a it, it's a phenomenal achievement, really. Anybody who manages to you know pick up and particularly in a position like Scramar.
0: Let's look at the Wales approach to this Saturday because for me, if you let England play their game, England will win. Wales have to do something different to unsettle the likes of Tuolangi, Smith, Itoje, etc. Dan Bigger opposite Marcus Smith is a very interesting matchup because you've got two very different players. You've got the game management and incision of Bigger and then the attacking intent of Smith. Bigger is also tenacious and he's thorny and he likes to get under your skin. Do you think that's his approach opposite Smith this weekend?
1: I think Dan Bigger is, um, is an amazing player. It's obviously him being captain the team will sort of mirror his approach. He's like really meticulous. He steps up. Um, he's got tremendous experience. And like those Welsh players that are experienced, I've got that sort of, they've got that gravitas we're talking about in terms of playing for a long time, being on Lions tours, winning Six Nations. They've got that. And I think Dan Bigger will just give belief to, his, to the players around him. And I think Dan Bigger does... basics really really well as well and that's what Wales have got to do is any international match like Wales have to be physical have to match England's like intent early on They have to get the kicking game right and Dan Bigger is obviously a master exponent of that particularly his ability to kick high and catch is is pretty incredible And, and yeah just have that with attacking game when Wales get opportunities like England are arguably a stronger side than Wales particularly at Twickenham and I think Wales, when they get opportunities, they have to take them. They have to be really clinical. So I think that'll be Wales' approach to make sure that they're they, are, they are on point. And then when they Wales have got like people like Josh Adams, Alex Cuthbert, Liam Williams, they can do th- something out of nothing. Um, so I think that's what, that's what Wales will be relying on and to have those moments of magic and just be like spot on when when the chance comes. And I think it'll be epitomised by Dan Bigger.
0: Michael, I'm particularly interested by your thoughts on the return of Tau Lupe Faletau. For me, there are two sides to it. One, is he ready? He went okay at the weekend for Bath, but he's very much in the early stages of his injury return. And two, would you have had him at eight or at six? He went at six for Bath last weekend. Uh, Ross Moriarty has obviously moved to six. Do you think that's just a number on the back of both of their shirts or do you think that actually represents something?
1: Yeah, I think pretty much in the back row, the roles are so interchangeable. Like, where you stand in the line-out changes, where you... Where like, the scrum and things, just, it's, it's not a huge, huge factor, I don't think. And I think Toby Faratau, he's just sort of like... He's like he's a fantastic player in his own right, but he's kind of like a glue player as well. He helps other people to to perform better around him. And again, the same as, like, Courtney Law is playing for England. He'll give those players around him confidence. They'll know he's going to, to do what's required. His performance levels across his career have been beyond question. He gives he gives Wales an awful lot, and and hopefully he can perform at his best level. But it is tough on the players when they come back in having not had a lot of return time, trying to like adjust to that inter- The pace of international rugby and the intensity of it. But Toby Falata was a pretty like proven performer, isn't he? So
0: hopefully he can go brilliantly on uh, on Saturday. It's quite a nice balance to the back row, actually. I. Personally, think you've got the hard hitting of Moriarty, you've got the raw talent and work rate of Basham, and you've got the experience of Falatau. Do you think this is Wales' strongest back row available to them at the moment? Yeah, it's a great back
1: row, and obviously, like looking, I was like looking at the benches for the teams as well, and I think like Wales have got Jack Morgan there to to, to back up as well, and he's obviously had a good start of his international career. He's going to be full of. Um, of energy and stuff when he comes on. So yeah, it definitely got a nice, a nice balance to that back row. And I think like Tim Basham's performances have been, been absolutely outstanding. They're quite reminiscent of Sam Warburton as well, sort of coming into the international scene and just hitting the ground running and really bringing that a level, a huge level of physicality um, and intent. So it's brilliant to see from a Welsh point of view like young players coming through. And, and yeah, I think that Welsh back row does look really, really good. And I like the look of the bench as well. I think like the front row subs Wales have got like can all come on and bring like a, a physicality and power and, and, a, and a bit of impact. They all want to get their hands on the ball. So that's that's encouraging for Wales as well. I'm sure that like Wayne Pivac will have that sort of strategy to try and make sure that the, the Wales use their bench effectively and, and try and like finish on top of England in the last 20
0: just one more thing on England versus Wales. We touched upon it earlier. Michael, you are the only one out of the four of us in the Rugby Paper Predictions League backing your boys to win. Obviously, I know where your loyalties lie. Is this a genuine belief prediction? Or if your life depended on it, would you still say Wales to win?
1: I think, I, for me, like, England, like going back to that, the handicap with the bookies, England are 14-point favourites and the bookies are normally pretty much right. So I think I would go with that. That would be what I would say, a like 14-point handicap. But... I just think Wales have a build-in. They're getting better, at it, and they haven't performed at an optimum level yet. And I just think a lot of hurt would have been caused by that performance out in Ireland. They would have been upset. They'd bounce back. I think the players would be desperate to, to to go and do well. And and who knows? Like in all likelihood, England will win the game. But I'm not. I, I'm not going to come on here and back England. So I'm going to go for Wales. And I think I don't think it's a, it's not an outlandish claim. And and fingers crossed,
0: they can they can perform well on Saturday and, and get a win. And Wales usually raise their game for England. So we may well see their best performance so far in the tournament. So you never know. You never know. I do hope they bring bring the fight. We are going to fast track Michael Owen's Random Rugby 15. Do it slightly earlier than usual. Michael, this is 15 quick fire questions for our listeners. Just about you, rugby memories, rugby experiences, and the odd random one thrown in there as well. So when you're ready, I will hit you with those 15 questions. Good to go. Nickname.
1: So when is in youth rugby long end? Why? Just because I was tall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Best rugby memory?
1: Uh, my first cap for 100% because it was something that I'd aspired to for so long. Um, and I can remember um, I was in South Africa in Like I can remember getting the jersey presentation the night before and just going back to my room and like putting the jersey, putting the kit out on the, on the bed and just, just being this is incredible thing to, to have achieved. And that, that would be over and above anything else. That was incredible.
0: Most embarrassing rugby memory? So I played for
1: um against Cardiff, and I was about 18 or 19, and I was playing number eight. And it was awful conditions, like proper, like Sardis road conditions, so really wet, really muddy. And I was back off a kick and got past the ball and went for a drop goal from about the the 10 yard line. Fortune favours the brave. Unfortunately, it didn't that day. So that was, probably there was a big like ooh from the crowd. So it was, a, and it was a flat packed out packed crowd, but.
0: How did the drop goal look? Was it mud ball? Did it, it come pretty, off the ground?
1: yeah, I know I I think it crossed the uh it crossed the line. Okay. Um, but it didn't get very high. So <laughs> for an,
0: for a number eight, that's usually a win, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah. It was like I was happy, yeah. So it was um, yeah.
0: <laughs> the only one celebrating on your team yeah. pre-game yeah. tune.
1: I, pro- I probably didn't really have one to be honest, because yeah, it just wasn't as big a thing as it is now nowadays. So I can remember getting inspired by a few few songs. I had a post-match song. So, when I played for de used Youth, everyone used to have to have a, a song. So, that was part. So, when you go back on the bus, so you play, play over in England, play Gloucester, Bristol, Bath, and stuff, you come back on the bus and you have a song. So, my song then was The Gambler by Kenny Rogers, which is a good one. And after a few weeks of singing it, everyone knew the song and you felt like you were a rock star when you came back on the bus. But obviously, not quite Jamie Roberts level. So, not, uh, didn't quite make it as a rock star, but felt like it for a, a few short moments.
0: Post game meal. Fish and chips.
1: Um, so it was always like you always driving back, stop off and, and and get like a fish chip. So quite often I used to travel, particularly when I was playing for the Dragons. Um, you'd travel with um like Gareth Wyatt, Kerry Sweeney, Kevin Morgan, and we'd always like stop off at like a place we go to and, and get there, And I had a nice story when I was a kid. It was a fish and chip shop space called like Chaplin's fish and chip shops, so even when I was young. Um, I was playing like Ponterpreet schools and 11s and stuff and if we went alright my dad would take me the other way back and you get chicken and chips and I continued that ritual like pretty much all the way through my career and the guy that worked they used to give us like in the end yeah, I went so often he gave me fish and chips so I gave it, gave it for free so it, was, uh, it wasn't was the best for professional rugby diet but it was pretty nice uh, nice perk of being yeah, a local player
0: Best player you've played against?
1: Jerry Collins um, was incredible and I think a lot of the time you play against someone who's a great player but they maybe don't play not that you've like shut them down or anything, but they maybe don't have the best game against you. They just sort of like part of a collective effort and, and whatever. But then I remember playing against Jerry Collins, so played the World Cup under 19 World Cup final. Um in 1999. we played at um Strategy Park and it was an amazing occasion for us as young players. But Jerry Collins played and he was just on another level. He was he was absolutely something else and never like experienced, at that point, never experienced someone with such physicality and raw power um and i got to play with him for the barbarians in
0: 2007 i think against south africa you might may have the same answer for this question but best player you've played with then because uh, i played with shane williams more
1: like shane williams was just he was absolutely incredible and he just i think the thing that, with shane williams was just his incredible confidence like you could give him the ball in any situation, and he would always back himself to, to beat the man. You could give him the ball, and he'd be like have three men on him, and he'd find a way to step out of it. Or so just like yeah, just being lucky enough to be on the field with someone like that, and just seeing him just doing like some magic. Like I remember a try against Argentina in two thousand and four, where he steps like I think he does like three side steps and goes side to side, and the fullback just sort of falls over in the end. It's just yeah, he was just a, an incredible player, and seeing special players like that is is obviously a great privilege.
0: Shane Williams will actually be our special guest in a couple of weeks' time, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Pass fav- that on for him. Pass yes, I will do. Uh, <laughs> favourite player right now? I think uh, someone like Anton Dupont, um,
1: and Marcus Smith is amazing. To be fair, Alex Dombrant playing for Harlequins and watching Harlequins play last season was pretty incredible. And yeah, Dombrant has been, um, been been amazing. I think like, he can do everything really, can't so he? So he's a, he's a fantastic player. So hopefully he can be a, a top international as well as a top club player. Rugby Idol. Like one of the most amazing things in like growing up in Wales um, was like you had like access to the the people who were playing for Wales. So Neil Jenkins was from the same village as me. He went to the same school, same as like Paul John, Andrew Lamerton, people like that. They were like real inspirations and sort of because you could see them um, playing for Wales. It was something you felt that, that you could sort of achieve as well. And it's a, it's a really unique thing, I think, in, in Welsh rugby to have that. Um, and that definitely inspired me. I was lucky like, enough to play with Neil Jenkins and Paul John and Lamerton and I was uh, they were they were amazing to me as well, really like kind and and looked after me. It was um, yeah, a really privileged position to be in as a kid. Favorite stadium? So, two both, so the two stadiums, best memory. So, Prince Party Stadium or Millennium Stadium, as it was, just incredible. Like when when we played well, and so for me, when I started, we played, played for Wales, it was like. People would be really excited to go to the game. Then, because we didn't perform, they'd be disappointed. So it was a slightly muted atmosphere. And as we went on, we got better and better. And then we had like some absolutely incredible matches there. So when that buzz in and the team play well, absolutely incredible. And then Sardis Road as well for me. Uh, Pont de was Preed was an amazing place to play as a kid. So they were where I aspired to play when I was uh, a kid coming through the ranks.
0: Favourite gym exercise?
1: Uh, bench press. So it's easy and simple.
0: Occupation if rugby didn't exist?
1: So for me, it would have been a PE teacher and a commentator. Uh, that's what I would have said when I was a kid. So I wanted to be a, an international rugby player, PE teacher or commentator, but I've done them all, in my life. So I'm working as a teacher now. So it's, um, so yeah, so I've been very, very fortunate.
0: Superstitions.
1: See a penny, pick it up, uh, pass it on. So that, that sort of superstition. So I think, uh, don't think my kids are too happy I giving them a dirty penny, particularly during COVID and stuff. But that was my superstition. So I had to keep doing it.
0: Rugby rule you would change.
1: Um, I think the one for me would probably be, like, not straight in the line-out. So, if, like, when there's no compete and the refs go up for not straight, then it's a marginal one. I think I'd like to see that just sort of, like, at the ref's discretion, just play on because I think it um, you don't want to go from scrum to line-out.
0: Yeah, it would speed the game up, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, best thing about working in rugby?
1: Just the vibrancy of being involved as a player um, and the special occasions you get to experience and yeah, just striving. You're always striving to try and be as good as you can and trying to perform and react into adversity and stuff. So I think that would definitely be probably the best thing about being a player. 15
0: out of 15. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for doing that. Back to the Six Nations. So we've got Scotland, France. Obviously, you've got the tournament leaders going to Murray Field. From a Scottish point of view, they have issues in the pack. Jamie Ritchie out after the England game. Uh, Rory Sutherland out. Matt Fagerson out. Johnny Gray out. Now, At the start of this tournament, Jeremy Guscott said in an article published by the Rugby Paper that Scotland lack firepower in the pack. Rory Dodge has come in at six, which was a surprise for many. He's not the heaviest guy. He's not even 100 kilos, which by back row standards is small in the modern game. Magnus Bradbury offers a little bit of heft to compensate, but against a France pack who are, quite frankly, mass monsters. Do we see that Scottish pack being able to keep up?
1: I think, yeah, that does... I put a different complexion on there. Scotland have lost four really top-level players down there as well. So that is going to make it significantly more difficult for Scotland. I did feel, before knowing that about the team, that Scotland had a chance because just like when you look at the Six Nations over the last few years, the home advantage has been a huge factor. Um, And I think just Scotland obviously would have been bitterly disappointed to go down to Wales and lose after having such a high beat in England. Um, and the Six Nations is unpredictable and I no doubt there'd be a shock at some point that they'll go against the form book. So yeah so it' be it'd be interesting to see how Scotland approach it and picking someone that's under 100 kilograms in the back row is obviously a big statement and it might be an indication of how Scotland think they can beat beat France as well so it might be they try and keep the ball in the field and really like try and move that pack around um, but like you say France are pretty incredible. Um, and Scotland, just got to hope that France have, a, have an off day. But yeah, you never know. And Scotland have done really well against France as well in the recent past. But you would say that does make it significantly more difficult for the Scots.
0: If Rory Dodge isn't under 100 kilograms, I'd like to apologise to him. Uh, he may have added a little bit of timber since his Wikipedia page was updated. But that's, a, that's what I'm going off. So yeah, apologies to Rory if that is the case. Nick, I want to talk about leadership. And Johnny Gray, we spoke about glue players. He is certainly one of them. How big a loss is he? And now against that France pack, which is a scary proposition, how does the sort of weight on the shoulders of Grant Gilchrist change?
3: Gray's a, a considerable force. You know, they will miss him. But, you know, Sam Skinner, I think, has been consistently extremely good. He's very versatile. Gilchrist I think is he's a bigger man than than Gray is even. You know, I mean Gilchrist is a is a big unit. You you talked about would would Scotland be able to keep up with France? I think they'll be able to keep up with France. You know, I mean they they've gone for mobility really, but they've got a bit more depth than they've had before. I certainly don't think uh, the Scots South African Schumann coming in for Sutherland is 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 a loss. I think that they'll try to move. You know, they'll play a they'll play a, a, a sort of fast, fast moving commando game, and try to outmaneuver France. But um, France have got a power game, but they're not they're they're not just a one trick pony. You know, they've got they've got speed in their side uh, all over. They've got a power that Scotland will find it very difficult to to
0: hold and a cohesion. Brendan, would you have brought Darje in? Obviously. Not too many options in the back row, but Josh Bayliss, who made a try-scoring return for Bath last weekend, he is not in the team. Uh, What does Darge bring against a French pack where he's playing against players who carry an extra 20, 30 kilos on him?
2: Darge, yeah, from what I've seen of him, um, he's like a, a slightly taller, skinnier Hamish Watson. I mean, I think he's quite a prospect, but... Like you guys are saying, is this the match so he can make an impact? I, I rather doubt it. I, I do think Scotland needs a little bit more tonnage up front against that French pack.
0: Brendan, I was speaking to you before we started recording about the fact that your theory is Scotland have one good game of tournament. Have they expended that allowance, so to speak, against England? Or could you see them against the odds pulling it out with the Murrayfield crowd behind them?
2: Yeah, Scotland traditionally always have one stellar performance and a couple of decent performances and a couple of really bad performances. Now, was Scotland, was England their their good performance? Actually, I didn't think they were that brilliant against against England. I don't think that was what I would call Scotland's performance. I'd hoped, expected that it might be against the French at home because they, they have got previous for that. But um, as we get closer to the game, I'm not getting that vibe. Uh, that French team just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? They are absolutely in the groove. They're a year, 18 months ahead of the other British teams other than Ireland, I think, in that they know what their World Cup team is already. And uh, I fear the worst uh, for Scotland. Uh, I think it'll be spirited and all that. And they'll they'll play a fast, loose game. But I think France will win that.
0: On the subject of France, so they're almost an antithesis to Scotland. Uh, No changes in the pack and one change in the back line, which was... In ways, injury-enforced. Villiers, who scored a hat-trick against Italy, is out with a sinus fracture. Mofonar moves to the wing and Jonathan Danty is back back in. What's interesting is, even two years ago, the France team was almost roulette. You didn't know what player was going to end up in what position. And now, like the starting 15, it almost rolls off the tongue. It's natural. You can predict 10, 11, 12, 13 out of 15 shirts very, very easily. Is this now the sign of a a dynasty of, of sorts? And is this the starting 15 that makes it 2023?
2: I think it's very close to the team. I, I think that that is the 2023 team, more or less. I mean, you will get one or two injuries. You know, they're, they're of the age profile that they're going to go through together. They're, they've got some sort of replacements, two or three strong in every position. I think they're in really good shape. I mean, the only, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, there's a big drop-off between DuPont and Luku. And that would be interesting if DuPont had to have a long-term injury, uh, how important he is to France, but it looks pretty set fair to me.
3: I'd like to talk about one of the uh, the, the French players who I think um, uh, changes the, uh, the, the dynamic to a degree, and that's uh, Jaminet. Woodward used to talk with England in 2003 about having a player who could always keep the scoreboard ticking over. Obviously, that was Johnny Wilkinson. Well, Jaminet... Has got about the same sort of strike rate as as Wilkinson at his best. And what I noticed against Ireland was that when France got, you know, when the going got uh, tough, Jaminet kept that scoreboard ticking over, and they were always just, a, you know, had that had that step ahead. And his inclusion uh, gives France an, a, a different a different armory.
0: Michael, I'm going to ask you to defend your prediction in a couple of minutes, but before that. Obviously, as a back rower slash second rower yourself, do you think there is a better pack in world rugby at the moment than France's pack?
1: No, France, they're an incredible team, aren't they? And they've got, I think one of the things I like about their team, they've got players who can do, can pull out big moments and and do special things, yeah. And France, they have got, they've got a huge pack, um, which is obviously a good starting point, but they're also dynamic and they can play, um, yeah, they're a really, really tough proposition for anyone to take on. But I, like I say, I do think the Six Nations does sort of um, the form book gets ripped up a little bit, and there are there's potential to have those those special special days this week in in, in Edinburgh or next or when the, the France go to Cardiff as well. Is that potential for it to to just everything go out the window? But France definitely are the form horses and the team going on. It's, it's amazing, I think, when you have those under twenties groups. Sort of like a number of players, which has happened to France. They they do tremendously well, win the World Cup, and then come through together. It's so powerful because they've got such shared experience and such extra chemistry. And I think that can make make a huge difference. And France are a frightening proposition at the minute. But saying that, Scotland have got quality, and I'm sure they'll. Finn Russell is obviously a fantastic player. Van der Meer was playing brilliantly and is a real threat. So I think Scotland will really fancy their chances, but it will be enormously difficult against that French French
0: team and the French pack, particularly. Are you saying that Russell, Van der merber Hogg you could throw in there as well, to a The keys are in the back line for beating France.
1: Yeah, to an extent that's where you've got to take those opportunities in there but obviously every every single game of rugby starts up front and you've got to meet that but Finn Russell is an unbelievably clever player and obviously if you're blitzing against him he'll have strategies as well to be able to overcome it in terms of his kicking game is arguably one of the best in the world and obviously when you blitz it does create space in behind so there is a there are ways Scotland will feel like they can win um you never know so I'll, st- I'll stick with my my prediction even though the team has changed very different to what we thought, but I think, yeah, hopefully Scotland can can do something special and sneak it.
0: Yeah, at least you've got your excuses for next week to restore any credibility. Yeah, they are bold predictions, certainly for our predictions league at the moment. We've got special guest, i.e., Tommy Allen, Jerry, Jerry Guscott, and now Michael Owen with twenty five points. Michael, you've obviously gone for, I would say, high-risk, high-reward, but the reward isn't even that high, so high-risk, medium-reward. Brendan, you're in third place with 26. Nick, you moved up to second place with 29, and I am currently in the lead with 32. But we'll reassess in a week's time and see where that leads us. And finally, moving on to Sunday's game, Ireland versus Italy. At the time of recording, we don't yet have the teams available. I actually personally think Andy Farrell has a very tricky job this weekend is this the time to shake things up or is it the time to secure the bonus point against italy and create some momentum again going to twickenham in a couple of weeks time
2: uh we're talking as if france have won the championship well they possibly will win the championship probably will win the championship but they haven't won it yet you know ireland need to bury italy they need to get the gun 15 out they need to put 30 40 50 points on them uh, because not only um, bonus points, but points difference could come into play if England do, or somebody, Wales or England, do the tournament a favour and beat France. So I don't think this is the time for experimentation. I don't think that's the way Andy Farrell will do it. They, they will be out there to reduce a, a sort of not a bounce back because
3: they play well against France, but they need to get back on the winning trail and heavily. I would certainly, the one thing that I wouldn't uh, do, I'd resist the temptation to bring uh, Johnny Sexton back. I would keep Carbury at fly half. I think he needs to get as much game time as he can. I thought he was extremely impressive against uh, against France for a guy who's had so little, um, you know, so little preparation. As as Brendan has said, you know, the Six Nations is not done by any stretch of the imagination, and it could, if France do slip up, it could very well come down to points difference.
0: Now, concerning Italy. I don't want to open the door of South Africa, which has been much talked about in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we do not have time for that. But to maintain Italy's credentials for staying in the tournament, do they need one big performance in the next three weeks to sort of make their case?
2: That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because all the talk at the moment is the spotlight is thrown onto a couple of good under 20 teams they've had and getting that generation through in a couple of years. And I saw enough in there win over um, England, monster pack. You know, there are, There is some talent coming through. They've just got to dig in and just the next two or three years somehow get some respectability. I don't think we're ever going to have seasons where I can win more than one match a season in the next two or three years. That's, in, you know, inconceivable. I thought they went pretty well against France, and I was disappointed that they didn't really fire a shot against England.
3: You know, I mean, the worry is is that they got some of the sap taken out of them by the French. They probably, you know, conditioning wise, they look in, in, in reasonable shape. But the, the biggest problem for me is, is that their halfbacks play a gambler's hand when they haven't got a lot to gamble with. Both Varney and Garbisi need to put Italy in the right parts of the pitch. That's got to be their, you know, their main modus operandi, not trying to, you know, fire miracle passes.
0: Right, gents, that's all we've got time for. Nick, Brendan, thank you so much for joining me, and I will see you both in a couple of weeks' time to preview England versus Ireland. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, and I wish you all the best, one, against England, but also with your predictions. Awesome, thank you. Join us next week for episode five of the Rugby Paper podcast, where in the final rest week for this year's Six Nations, I'm joined by Leicester Tigers prop James Whitcomb and his dad, former Sale and Leicester Tigers prop Martin Whitcomb to discuss generational change in the game of rugby.